This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, May 9th. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Peter's twin brother, Paul Elliott. There you go. We are coming to you live from Champaign, Illinois. If you're um, a first-time listener, this is a weekly baseball podcast that Paul and I do each week. That's why it's a weekly baseball <laughs> podcast. Uh, we come to you today very tired. Very, very tired. Yeah, Dragon. Um we both ran uh, three miles this morning as part of the third annual Aruna Run. It's a uh, a run that uh, Peter is actually intimately involved in. <laughs> intimately. Uh, putting on. And it raises money and awareness uh, for women caught in sex slavery in, uh, in India. So great cause, but we are both pretty tapped out. Yeah, in the course there's a, um, a very large hill. That you have to run up twice, actually, because uh, you have to run the whole course twice. That would be an interesting blog post, Notable Hills in Baseball. What do you mean? What? Just the one in Houston, right? Uh, I'm sure there are others. Didn't the polo grounds have one? I don't know. You mean, oh, you mean like old parks? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you're the blogger, so maybe you can write that. Uh, anyway, yes, thanks for joining us. Uh, apologize if we don't have the same energy uh, this week, um, but you know why. All right, so thank you to Nelly for our intro song there. Uh, our Nelly fact this week is that he worked for UPS, according to an article in Us Weekly in 2015. Nelly worked in a UPS warehouse, uh, which means he didn't wear the uniform, the UPS uniform. This was before his career took yes, off. Yes. So uh, the more you know, you're painting a very. Uh, Robust and comprehensive picture of Nelly. Yeah, by the end of the year, I think we're gonna have no way, way, uh, way too much about Nelly. Uh, but thanks to him for the intro song, uh, Paul. Uh, you lost our Aruna bet, so I think you know. In a few minutes, we'll get to your seven-minute solo segment because you lost uh, as we raced against each other. My time was. Around 28, 29 minutes, you were a couple minutes behind that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I was around 31. And it was a 5K, so a little bit over 3 miles, for those of you that are calculating our uh, our splits there. Uh, but before we get to your solo segments, um, I thought we could banter about baseball. What do you got? Well, I feel like uh, the story of baseball all season so far has been the Cubs um, first team to 20 wins, um, and uh, they just keep keep winning. Um, in our stat segment later on, our TWTW segment, I'm going to talk about teams that make it to May 1st with a winning percentage of 700 or greater. And so I did all this research based on May 1st, but then since May 1st, they've won, mm-hmm. they've yeah. won five straight against the Nationals and Pirates, two of the best teams in the National League. Mm-hmm. So they've, they keep winning, and... Uh, there's not a whole lot more you can say. I mean, the the scary thing is, like, if you look at their individual numbers, some guys are underperforming quite a bit. Like, Hayward has been a disappointment. Obviously, Fowler has been mm-hmm. amazing. Sobers is finally starting to pick it up. 
Rizzo power wise hasn't been great. So Rizzo, yeah, he's got nine homers. No, well, <laughs> um, but I just feel like they have certain guys that aren't playing their best, and they're still better, way mm-hmm. better than everyone else. Yeah, and we're gonna talk a lot about the Cubs, uh, your segment, your stat segment, and then um, our interview with Ryan Watts of Baseball Prospectus later. So I won't touch on the Cubs too much. Obviously, as a Cubs fan, I'm very uh, excited about the team's start. Um, One note on the Cubs' national series. On Thursday night, uh, they were playing in Chicago, and the uh, White Sox and Red Sox were also playing in Chicago. Uh, It was the first time that four division leaders had played in the same city on the same night. Around the same day, I thought, yeah, that, I, I thought I, that was really surprising to me because of all the, you know, like all the New York teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to have three teams in New York, and um, yeah, that was just surprising to me. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I'm surprised it never happened in New York. I, I could assume it wouldn't have happened in Chicago just because both teams are never good in the same year. Mm-hmm. I guess what other teams have two two teams? What other cities have two teams? No, the Philadelphia had the A's and the Phillies for a while. Mm-hmm. St. Louis had the Cardinals and Browns for a long time. Yeah, I think right now it's just New York and Chicago. Uh, L.A., I guess. Angels. Oh, if you count, count the Angels. Los Angeles Angels. Of Anaheim. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, the Reds' bullpen. Paul, have you seen this? Mm-hmm. This stat on the Reds' bullpen? Uh, I have not. They broke a record. They've given up a run in 23 straight games. Wow. Um, the previous record is 20, so they have flown by that so far this year. Um, I think I, that that street goes back to like one, the, the first week in April. I can't name one relief pitcher for the Reds. I just know because of fantasy. Hoover is their closer, or was their closer. Uh, the bu- Reds bullpen ERA during that stretch is 7.68. Uh, so 79 innings pitched, 96 hits, and 68 earned runs, uh, and a shockingly high amount of home runs, 21 home runs in uh, 80 innings. When, um, who's the first pitcher you think of when you think of a uh, Reds reliever? Aroldis Chapman. For some reason, I think of Kent Merker. Hmm. I don't know why. He pitched for the Cubs, too. Uh, give some context. The White Sox probably have had the best bullpen uh, so far this year, and they've given up 18 earned runs all year, whereas the Reds uh, in tw- the last 23 games have given up 68. So um, that's about four times what the White Sox have given up all season. And the White Sox bullpen has just given up three home runs all season compared to 21 home runs for the Reds during that stretch. Yeah, Sox have been pretty stellar. They're the second team to 20 wins, um, and obviously the best team in the uh, American League. I'm still not real confident they can keep this pace up the whole year, but um, I at least think the playoffs are a reasonable expectation now. Mm -hmm. The Marlins have been really hot. They've won 11 out of 12 um, so Mattingly, Stanton, and the crew down in South Beach has uh, got it going, even with D. Gordon's suspension. Kind mm-hmm. of an interesting storyline there. Uh, also, the Yankees are terrible. Um, I know they've won a couple against the Red Sox this weekend, but overall, uh, just a terrible start. Girardi got tossed uh, from a game. Uh, looked like he kind of reached his breaking point. Sabathia's on the DL. A-Rod had to go on the DL. Mm-hmm. Ellsbury probably will have to go on the DL. Um an old uh, injury-riddled team. Yeah, the Royals are also uh, struggling. Um, they, uh, they're they back at 500. Had a bad week this past week, but then Mike Moustakis 
went on the DL with a fractured hand. I didn't see that. He's one of the few guys that was producing. Um, they have the third worst offense, according to runs scored, um, in the American League. So th- they haven't had a great start, and maybe finally this is the year where <laughs> all of us making preseason predictions are proved right. Maybe. Did you take the under on them in our over-under game? Uh, you know, I think I actually, I actually took the over. I'm pretty okay. sure. I predicted them to be the uh, second wild card in the American League. Who'd you pre- predict to win the AL Central? Indians. Okay. Uh, lastly, the steroids. Uh, There's an outside the lines report from ESPN earlier this week that more players were going to get suspended any day. And it's Saturday when we're recording this and no players have been suspended. Yeah. So I guess we're just kind of waiting uh, to see uh, to see who those players are. Are you worried as a Cubs fan that this could be the thing that derails them? I don't think so. It's an interesting uh story though that the testing that they're doing on these players the steroids that they're getting um suspended for that are coming up on these tests are steroids that could have been taken years ago there's like a new type of testing um or it's like the same test but like the sensitivity is is just a lot more heightened and so they can detect steroids that were taken years ago in these tests um and so i'm sure a lot of players they hear that are starting to freak out if they took it three four years ago and correct me if I'm wrong, but the actual steroid is pretty, uh, like a pretty elementary steroid. Yeah, it's like an East German, one of those old school yeah. steroids. They're not really built to... They didn't get it from Victor Conti. <laughs> nope. Nope. Uh, one other note, uh, Garrett Richards, I don't know if you saw this, uh, done for the year. Yeah, he's the first kind of prominent um, Tommy John surgery after Passon's book came out. Yeah, it's a bummer. And their rotation... Uh, I don't know if you've taken a look at this, but beyond Richards, who was the Angels' ace, uh, Hector Santiago, who's a former White Sox, is a okay starter. But then Jeff Weaver is there. Mm-hmm. Jared Weaver. Or Jared Weaver, yeah. Um, they'd be in a lot of trouble if Jeff was. Mm-hmm. But Jared, he maxes out at like 85 miles an hour, mm-hmm. and he's their number two starter. So, yeah, I think you'll see more and more blog posts being written about, you know, whether to trade Trout or whether to tear that down would be fascinating. the angels. That but would be fascinating. That might be a good blog post for you is like five realistic trades for Mike Trout. Yeah, I don't know. Because it's probably a pretty narrow group of teams that could trade for him because you'd have to have the money to take him on and then also the young players to get him back. So like a team like the Cubs. Because they have him locked down for a while. I, yeah, he signed a huge contract. Gave them, a, I think, a huge discount. Hmm. And, you know, if he would have waited, he could have gotten a lot more. All right, so coming up in our segment, Paul's going to talk for seven minutes by himself, and then we're going to answer a listener email uh, out of the box. A couple articles Paul and I read in Paul's stat segment, TWTW, where he answers another uh, listener email. Sounds of the game, throwing it back to May 12, 2004. See if you can guess what that was. Uh, and then our interview with Ryan Watt of Baseball Prospectus. He is a Cubs writer and uh, editor-in-chief of uh, the Cubs Baseball Prospectus website. So really good uh, interview with him. Really enjoyed that um, time with him. And then uh, we'll finish out the podcast with our normal uh, segments at the end. But first, because Paul lost our bet, I beat him in the Aruna run Earlier today, he has to talk for seven minutes without uh, any notes. Um, 
before he talks, if you get really bored, check out arunaproject.com. It's aruna, A-R-U-N-A, project.com to learn more about the cause. But, Paul, you ready to start the timer? Yes, it's started. Go. All righty. Here is my seven minutes of fame. I feel like Vince Scully a bit, a one-man show, and... um, yeah, so for my seven minutes, uh, I wanted to recount some of my favorite or my most memorable baseball moments, and I'm going to try to do so in the slowest manner possible, um, and also try to be a very engaging storyteller. So my third most memorable baseball moment, uh, it occurred in 2009, it would have been, spring of 2009, uh, Peter and I were finishing up high school, and we were playing uh, for our hometown team, the Beer Valley Storm. We're both from North Central Illinois, small high school, and obviously we were concluding high school, so we were also concluding our high school baseball career, and neither of us were playing post-high school, so this was it for us, and we were the number two ranked team in our regional and the number one ranked team was our arch rival, the Princeton Tigers, from a half hour away. And uh, we both won our kind of our not our playing games, but our, won the semifinals of the regional to advance to the championship game, which was on a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon. I can't really recall. Um, we got down five to one early. Uh, did not look good. Uh, Princeton, the other team, was very very good, very talented probably much better than us on paper. We went on a furious comeback. Uh, I think we had a four or five run inning and eventually won the game uh, seven to six with uh, our closer, Eric Ringel, uh, throwing, I think, about 25 straight curveballs to end the game. Uh, And uh, so it was just a very memorable moment, and I believe there was water coolers dumped on coaches and players afterwards, and Peter was actually our best pitcher that year. So... We went on to sectionals and lost our first game there, but it was still a very memorable experience. And it was actually the first regional championship in the history of our school, which at that point was about 15 years old. Um, Yeah, so that is baseball memory number three. Baseball memory number two occurred in 2003, and this is why I said not so much my favorite baseball memories, but my most memorable. Uh, This is one I'll hold with me forever. Uh, I was at the Steve Bartman game, and I was in standing room only, uh, in the standing room only area, along the left field wall at Wrigley Field, with my brother John and a couple of his friends, uh, Peter and my mom and Grandpa, uh, and my dad were sitting in center field, uh, kind of right beneath the the scoreboard, famous scoreboard at Wrigley Field, and. Uh, uh, it was a great game, great atmosphere. We were thinking the Cubs were um, bound for the World Series, and uh, they played really well uh, for the first uh, seven innings. And obviously, you know the story. Uh, Steve Bartman, a fan along the left field line, reaches over, uh, and it's probably inconclusive whether he actually reached into field of play. He probably did, um, but robbed Moise Salu, the Cubs left fielder, from catching a fly ball. Uh, the Marlins go on to score. Uh, I think four or five runs that inning, and they win the game, win the series. But what was so interesting and probably memorable about it was that I was, so I'm not a Cubs fan, I'm a White Sox fan, but um, we were probably 20 rows back 
from where Bartman was at. And just to see the reaction um, to, to him, he actually got like walked out, escorted out by security almost immediately, like within five minutes. Um, and the the amount of beer that was thrown at him, and just like the insults hurled at, uh, hurled his way, was um, was pretty amazing. And um, just as kind of like a an observer, you know, I don't have a vested interest in the game. It was just a fascinating um, thing to witness. Um, yeah, so that's. Uh, memory number two, obviously not one of my favorite ones because it was hard to see uh, my grandpa and uh, my brothers and my mom, who are all Cubs fans, go through that. Um, it was one of the more somber environments after the game that I've ever seen as well. If you can imagine, like, 50,000 people just walking in almost complete silence, um, that's exactly what it was like. All right, so that was base- baseball memory number two. Baseball memory number one would be when my White Sox won the World Series in 2005, and I was trying to think through um, what specific moments from uh, that World Series run were like kind of most prominent in my mind, and I think uh, I have to go with two moments. Um, the first one was when Paul Canerco hit a uh, grand slam. The Sox were down 4-2 to two in Game 1 of the World Series against the Astros, and Canerica came up bases loaded in the fifth, I believe, and uh, hit a hit a grand slam to put them up six to four. And there's a if you're white, I was going to say famous, but not really famous for the normal baseball fan. But if you're a White Sox fan, there's kind of a famous shot of Canerco putting his arm over his head um, that was replayed a lot last year because last year was Canerco's uh, final season for the White Sox. Um, so that was probably memory number one. I remember watching that um, at home, sitting in our living room. And my white, my dad's a White Sox fan, so all these members are pretty special because I was with him. And then the second uh, memory from that World Series run was uh, when um, Juan Ribe, also in the World Series, jumped into the stands. He uh, um, jumped into the stands to catch a, a foul ball. It was very Jeter-esque. Um, obviously, he doesn't get as much publicity because he's not Derek Jeter. And he's Juan Uribe. Um but an incredible play, and at that point, the series was probably already decided. You know, the Sox were up 3-0, and it looked like they had all the momentum. Um, but just an incredible play. And um, also, uh, I think from that season, the uh, or from the postseason, the White Sox going um, four straight complete games um, against the Angels was a pretty incredible run as well. So those are my top three memories. Um, I am at 6 minutes, 40 seconds. Um, I'm actually pretty impressed that that stretched for that long. I hope you're still listening. And uh, as Peter said, um, if nothing else, this gave you an opportunity to go to aruna.com or arunarun.com um, and uh, and check out uh, what a cool organization that is. Seven minutes, arunaproject.com. Arunaproject.com. Pete, how did I do? Pretty good. Uh, some thoughts. Uh, that Cubs game. Uh, you, you forgot Rob Blagojevich, the Illinois governor, after the the Bartman game, <clears throat> said that he would not pardon. Uh, I forgot about that Barton, Bartman. So that I feel like that kind of created some hostility. So it wasn't all silent, but from normal Cubs fans, it was a a very somber and silent. Um, I remember one of the guys we were with, uh, one of my older, one of our older brothers' uh, friends, said, "I hope that we're not talking about this game ten years from now." Wow. Sure enough. Yeah, which uh, which we definitely are. So uh, those are good memories. Uh, well done. Well done. I don't, know, right. I don't know how Colin Cowherd does it. Yeah. 
any of those guys that host their own shows. Moving on to a listener email, you can send us emails at a foot in the box at gmail.com. That's a foot in the box at gmail.com. Uh, Paul is going to answer an email as well during his stat segment. This question comes from Craig. He's asking why the White Sox attendance is still so poor um, despite having a, a good team so far this year. Uh, and I didn't you know, want so much to dwell on the White Sox because it's so early in the season. I don't, I don't think you can uh, take away a lot from specific teams' uh, attendance so far because, I mean, some teams have only played 12 home games, uh, like the Rockies, for instance. The Indians have played 11 when we were recording this, uh, so that's just not enough, especially in April and early May. Uh, but overall, attendance is down 1.4%, and if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I'm a huge attendance nerd and like to follow it. Uh, so I've been following it pretty closely, and it's been down about around 1% for the, the whole season, um, which uh, isn't great for baseball. I mean, that's got to be an issue for Manfred as he looks at this. You'd want it to be up, obviously. Um, now you can blame it on the weather. April was a pretty bad month. I think a lot of postponements, not a ton of walk-up crowds. Um, you know, for most of these early games, you've just got season ticket holders that are going to games. Um, so I guess it does reveal that certain teams have bad season ticket holder uh, bases. Um, if you're curious, the Dodgers lead baseball in attendance. They are drawing 46,757 fans per game. Cardinals, uh, Giants, Yankees, Angels, actually, are the top five. Um, and then the bottom five. Uh, 26 is Baltimore at 20,000. Uh, 27 is Oakland at 18,000. The White Sox are 28th at 18,000 as well. The Rays are at 16,000, but they're actually up uh, about 1,000 fans per game from last year at this time. Shows you how bad they are. And then the Indians are last at 14,000, which is just not good for, for a team that's been in Cleveland for so long. Yeah, and getting into... Craig, specific question about the White Sox. Um, as a Sox fan, it is kind of depressing to see them draw so poorly, especially even when they have a hot start like they have this year. Um, but I would say the norm for the Sox is right around like 1.8 million. If you look at the last 20 years or so, uh, if if they're just an average team, that's about what they draw. And I think what, what has skewed in the last decade uh, has been their run to the World Series. And so if you look at like in, in 05, I went and looked, and they drew 2.3 million. Next year, they drew 2.95. Hmm. Uh, and in 2007, they drew 2.6. So that skewed it, I think, a bit. Um, they had an amazing success on the field, and that drew more fans. But now, every year since then, there's been a regression. And I think um, kind of the the baseline is right around 1.7, 1.8 million, which is, you know, it sucks. Uh, I wish they drew more, but um, I'm not all of that upset about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it gets into another, a bigger question that we've talked about before in the podcast is what, you know, what's the correlation between winning and attendance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we've talked about before Harpo times has done some research that the, uh, you see the biggest, um, correlation between wins in one season followed by attendance the next season mm-hmm. versus attendance in that same season where the teams win a lot of games. Mm-hmm. There's a greater correlation between, Increase in attendance the next year. Yeah, the season ticket. Uh, if you get those to go up, that's right. You know, going to be a lot better than 
depending on uh, just fans to buy tickets for single games. All right, that does it for our opening segment. Next up, out of the box. All right, I feel like I've talked for about two hours now. This is Paul. Uh, the article I read this week was fascinating. Excellent piece by Rob Nyer in the New York Times. The title was Baseball's Naturals. There goes yet another Roy Hobbs. Uh, and Nyer, very interesting. Uh, he traces the history of uh, sports writers using the phrase the natural or the nickname the natural to describe a player. And he questions whether we're actually using it accurately or not. So, of course, the phrase the natural comes from the movie, uh, which Peter still has not seen. I have not. One of the best baseball movies of all time. I need to see it. It came out in 1984, uh, but that was based on a book, loosely based on a book called The Natural that came out in 1952. And so uh, given that, Nair kind of, he looks back and does quite a bit of research to look at all the players nicknamed The Natural. Peter, off the top of your head, do you know of any... Can you think of any players that have been nicknamed the natural? Uh, I could just guess. Uh, Roger Maris. Nope. No. Uh, Mike Trout. Uh, surprisingly not. No. I'm trying to think of the best players. I mean, the thing that set Nair is, is it a race thing? Like, are any black players on that list? There are some. The thing that set Nair off was a recent example. So someone that has been really, really good the last few years. And there's actually a book that came out that called him the natural. Any ideas? Say that again. Uh, the thing that set Nair off and caused him to write the article or the essay was a recent example of a player, current active player, current player, left-handed, young phenom. Don't say it. Harper. Bryce Harper. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, there was a book by Rob Meech called "The Last Natural." Like Reggie Jackson? Uh, he was trying not. to think of home run hitters. Uh, in 1982, there were, this is the first example of someone using the phrase the natural. Kurt Gibson, Tigers outfielder. Okay. Uh, 1984, Cardinals third baseman Terry Pendleton. Uh, Swing and a miss there. 1989, Will Clark, first baseman for the Giants. Mm -hmm. Another first baseman in 1993, John Olerud. He actually flirted with batting 400. In my memory, he's always just been a defense first, well, first baseman. The first thing everyone thinks about with John Holyrood is that he wore, wore the, the helmet. helmet on the field. Yeah, but I didn't realize he was that good of a hitter. Uh, this is where it starts to get kind of funny and interesting. Mid-1990s, Andrew Jones, that makes sense, uh, but Kareem Garcia, Dodgers outfielder, hmm. who had a very long career but not a very good career. Played for the Cardinals for a bit. And then uh, there's two Sports Illustrated covers in the last decade, uh, or in the last 15 years. Ken Griffey Jr. in 1990. There's a sweet SI cover of of him mm -hmm. um, that says The Natural. That's a, yeah, that one's I've seen that before. Jeff Francoeur in 2005 SI cover, uh, and I'll read the the, the cover. Uh, it says The Natural. Atlanta rookie Jeff Francoeur is off to an impossibly hot start. Can anyone be this good? Uh, Do you know what his start was that year? Batted 400 in his first 25 games. There you go. So maybe a slow week in sports that week. Um, and then, Do you still subscribe to SI? I do not. And then Bryce Harbour 
in 2012 with the book that came out by Rob Meech. Uh, and so the common denominator for all of those examples is youth, kind of young phenoms. Mm-hmm. But really, uh, and you wouldn't know this because you haven't watched the movie, um, that's not like the natural at all. In the movie, uh, Robert Redford, who plays Roy Hobbs, um, is shot. Early, I mean, he, he's a very good baseball player. Uh, early on, mm-hmm. he's shot and actually takes like a hiatus for 15 years, and then comes back and bursts onto the scene. And so, all those examples, you know, don't really describe that type of career arc. Uh, but Nyer picks out two cases that he thinks do fit that career arc. Mm-hmm. One would be Rick Ankiel, okay, which I feel like is the most accurate. He came up as a pitcher, similar to Hobbs. Uh, kind of a- ended that. Uh, chapter of his career, shockingly, he couldn't like throw strikes, mm-hmm. just couldn't throw the ball anymore, which is similar to Hobbs getting shot. And then he returned years later under the radar as a uh, as a power hitting outfielder. Hmm. So very similar to uh, Roy Hobbs. And the other one, which I mentioned to you last night, Toe Nash, who is a fascinating guy. If you if you haven't already, go and search Toe Nash, Peter Gamins, and read. Gaiman's feature on him in 2011. T O E N A S H. Yeah, toe like the body part, and then Nash. Uh, he was a uh, a kid from Louisiana, rural Louisiana, uh, who dropped out of school in middle school. He couldn't read, he couldn't write, but he could hit the ball a long ways, and he could also throw at 95 miles an hour. And he was discovered by a raised Tampa Bay Devil Rays scout playing on sugarcane fields in rural Louisiana. So he signed with a raise and actually put a year in the minors in 2001. That's when Gamins wrote the article. Um, and he, he did okay, didn't do great, but it looked like he was making improvements. And then um, tragically, or not tragically, um, unfortunately it came out that he had been arrested five times uh, in the year prior. Hmm. And none of that was covered because he was so under the radar. And, what was he arrested for? Uh, there was actually, I think, he was accused of rape. That case ended up getting dropped, but I think there was a maybe burglary somewhere in there. Um, but he did come back, and the Reds signed him um, later on, 2002, I think the year was. Um, but he never, he never ended up panning out. But hmm. um, he would have been the type where under the radar guy that comes up and is an amazing power hitter. Um, but unfortunately his career was stopped short. Yes. So let's stop using the phrase, the natural incorrectly to describe young phenoms and instead use it to describe 35 year old power hitters that burst onto the scene. My article was also from the New York times. Arthur was Richard Sandomir and the title was an electronic umpire baseball tried it in the 1950s. Exclamation point. Uh, Paul, we've talked about the Brooklyn Dodgers quite a bit the last month with uh, the Jackie Robinson baseball profiles and the Ken Burns documentary. We've also talked a lot about uh, the possibility of an automated strike zone, mainly last year. There's a big push for that, Um, especially from one of our podcast listeners, uh, Kiefer, out there. Uh, Anyway, so this article merges both of those. During the spring training of 1950, the Brooklyn Dodgers experimented with an electronic umpire. Uh, it was Branch Rickey's idea. Rickey, of course, uh, was the team owner and general manager. He's responsible for uh, bringing Jackie Robinson into the majors. 
1947. Uh, and this uh, electronic umpire was a machine built by a General Electric engineering team from Syracuse, New York in 1949. It used mirrors, lenses, and photoelectric cells beneath home plate that would, after detecting a strike through three slots around the plate, emit electronic impulses that illuminated a red light. So if you picture like a, a home plate, uh, sort of like mat uh, with cords running out of it to a uh, a big box that would emit a light, that's what it was. Hmm. Uh, so it was like a, a thing that was underneath home plate. Um, but it couldn't be used at night games because it needed light uh, with uh, the mirrors and lenses and photoelectric cells. Um, Did it work during the day? Uh, so the, there's this... All this, uh, um, or all these articles written about the the first time it was used in a spring training, uh, not even a game, but just kind of an at bat with uh, Pee Wee Reese, who was the Dodgers shortstop. He was the first to try it, and uh, he did not like the calls it was making. Thought that it was mm-hmm. calling balls strikes, um, and uh, it seemed to judge like. Uh, horizontally better than it did vertically. So it was, it was calling a lot of pitches that were low and high strikes. Hmm. Um, Popular Science uh, publication, they declared that uh, it was an umpire even the Dodgers can't talk back to. Hmm. So apparently the Dodgers had a reputation for uh, arguing oh. balls and strikes. I wonder if they were like initially like they like tried to protest it. You know, like their initial reaction would be to turn and yell or argue. Oh, well, I, it wasn't really ever used in a game. It was just kind of a publicity mm-hmm. stunt. Um, and Ricky uh, found this quote pretty fascinating. Even then, he was getting pushed back, like, you're putting umpires out of business, uh, out of work. Um, and his quote in the Washington Post said he had no intention of replacing human umpires with the electronic version. He saw it merely as a teaching tool. He said, I'm greatly interested in it because I'm sure... It will be of great aid in making both young hitters and pitchers more conscious of the strike zone. So he saw it more as a thing you'd use in practice to get, I guess, a better framework for what the strike zone was as uh, hitters and pitchers are being brought up. Uh, Carl Erskine, who was a Dodgers pitcher back then, is actually still alive, so he remembers that day. Uh, he said the machine's stay in spring training was very short-lived. It uh, was not seen very much after that first day uh, back in uh, spring training of 1950. Branch Rickey, he sounds like a fascinating guy. Yep, innovator. I wonder, uh, are there any good biographies on him? I'm sure there are. Seems like he was always like tinkering and thinking up crazy new ideas. Mm-hmm. Yep, so both of those New York Times articles can be found on our podcast episode page at afootinthebox.com. Next up, we have TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right, as I tease in our intro, uh, I'm going to be taking a look at uh, teams from the last uh, 20 years who had at least a 700 winning percentage on May 1st. Uh, And this was provoked in my mind because the Cubs and the Nationals um, both had uh, plus 700 winning percentages. And Scott, uh, a listener, 
um, from Champagne uh, emailed the podcast and asked this question. Uh, what are exa- other examples of teams that have dominated like the Cubs? Um, so I looked at the last 20 years and um, found a few interesting things. So 25 teams fit that category of being plus 700 winning percentage on May 1st in the last 20 years. Obviously, you have the two from this year, the Cubs and Nationals. Uh, the Cardinals last year actually had a 727 winning percentage on Mm-hmm. On May 1st. They started at 20 and 6 as well, right? Mm-hmm. 2013 Red Sox, 2012 Rangers, 2012 Dodgers are just a few recent examples. But So 25 total that fit that category. Um, and the, tw- the 2016 Cubs had the sixth highest um, winning percentage on May 1st amongst those 25 teams. Sixth highest at uh, 739. So they're winning almost 74% of their games. Uh, the Nationals are... Uh, quite a bit lower at uh, 7.08. The highest, Pete, you want to take a stab at this? In the last how many years? 20 years. Uh, I'll just guess the Mariners because of their great run. Or the the Yankees. Um, what year would it have been? Like the 02 Yankees? 03 Yankees. Okay. 7.86 was their winning percentage. Uh, the 2001 Mariners did make the list. Um, they, of course, were the last team to, to win 116 games. They have the record, uh, but their winning percentage was 769 on May 1st. Um, so getting into some of the, the research um, as it relates to what we can expect from the Cubs the rest of the year based on you know past examples of early season success, uh, almost 70% of the, the teams, the 23 teams that have had a plus 700 winning percentage went on to make the playoffs. So 70, 70% of teams start the season hot, are above 700, and then make the playoffs. So it's reasonable to assume that the Cubs huh. will make uh, the playoffs. That's distorted a little bit because of the playoff structure, too. Yeah, only one team has missed since the two wildcard okay. format. Um, yeah, so uh, interesting. Uh, and 96% have finished above 500. There's only one example hmm. uh who was that? The 2011 Indians, who finished 80 and 82. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the Indians have been letting down people for a while. Um, among those with a plus 725 winning percentage, which I said the Cubs were at 739 on May 1st, so they would fit this category. There are seven other examples of this. All of them made the playoffs and uh, won at least 95 games. So if the Cubs didn't win 95 games, they'd be the first. Um, First team in the last twenty years to start this well and then not uh, mm-hmm. and not make the playoffs. So, mm-hmm. and then five out of those seven won a hundred games, um, with the the Cardinals last year being the most recent example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what I think is so fascinating about this, so I I think we can say now with reasonable certainty that the Cubs will win at least ninety five games and make the playoffs at least as a wild card. That's almost a guarantee at this point. Uh, but you really can't predict playoff success. It's a completely new season, and I think that will be the most fascinating storyline with the Cubs. I think their um, their amazing start and what will probably be an amazing season will only put kind of more attention, heightened attention on the playoffs, and uh, it's really a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. Um, only 13% of the teams, of the 23 teams uh, I looked at, um, won the World Series. Three out of 23 teams, so... It's certainly not a predictor. Early season success is not a predictor of World Series success. Um, But you have to get in the playoffs to give yourself a chance. So 
Um, yeah, so just some interesting nuggets from my research, and Scott, appreciate the question. Um, looks like the Cubs are bound for the playoffs, but who knows once they get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was kind of curious to know uh, how frequent 100 games was for a team. The Cardinals won it last year, and it was actually the first time since uh, 2011. Um, and that year the Phillies did it at 102 wins, um, and then it was much more frequent uh, in the 2000s. 2009 Yankees won 103. 2005 Cardinals won 100. Uh, 2004 Yankees won 101. 2003 Braves and Yankees both won 101, uh, along with the Giants who won 100. 2002, the Yankees and A's uh, both won 103. That, of course, was the Moneyball uh, year for the A's, uh, and the Braves also won 100 that year. And then 2001, when the Mariners won 116, people forget a team in their division, the A's, also won 102 that year. Uh, so you had a, a lot of bad teams at the bottom of the, the AL in 2001. Um, and one question I had been thinking about and it was on the podcast I listened to earlier this week is why we hadn't seen powerhouse teams like this. Um, even teams like the Cardinals who went 100, I mean, they're so far away from that 116 total. The difference between the Cardinals and uh, you know a team like the Indians who are right around 500 is the difference between the Cardinals and the, the Mariners at 116 wins. Uh, so why aren't teams reaching that that? even close to the high mark. And um, on the podcast, they, had, they were talking about how teams aren't motivated to go from 95 wins to 115 in the, the mm-hmm. off season. So uh, you're not going to make all the moves necessary. Like the Cubs did last off season, you're going to be content with, uh, with what you got. It's not uh, probably wise financially even to do that. Um, and it makes the Cubs uh, a really compelling and interesting case this year is I think they're going to go for – you know, as many wins as they can possibly get. I know some people have talked about how they'll cut it back late in the season. I don't think that this is a team that's going to do that. But even if they rest guys, I mean, the Cubs have, uh, like, their AAA outfielders are would be starting on the White Sox right now. Like, even Who? McKinney. Oh, yeah. He's still hurt. Even even if they rest guys, you have... Amora, yeah. You know, say they rest Russell at shortstop. Javi Baez is mm-hmm. their backup. It's like... They are so deep right now um, that even if they rest guys, they will still be like a. They'll be putting a team on the field that could win a hundred games. Mm-hmm. I also think they're going to trade for a pitcher uh, at the deadline, like a number three, because um, I don't think you want Hamill starting games in the playoffs. Um, so that that would also increase their their chances. So very very interesting. How many wins you predict for the Cubs this year? I will say the Cubs will win. 103 games. Yeah, I was thinking 105. They're on pace for 127 Wow! right now. That does it for TWTW. Next up, Sounds of the Game. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I have Sounds of the Game. This is Peter. Uh, This Sounds of the Game comes from May 12, 2004. It's uh, coming up Thursday of this week, uh, anniversary. Uh, it's the Cubs and the Dodgers. Matt Clement is pitching, and Alex Cora is batting. Paul, do you know what this is? Um, no, I don't. It's uh, an 18-pitch at bat. It's kind of a, a oh, famous I, famous thing on YouTube. I think I've seen this, actually, yeah. Um, so 18-pitch uh, at bat for Alex Cora. Uh, it was 17% of Clement's total pitches for the game. 
And uh, the record, if you're curious, for pitches in a, in a at-bat is 20 by Ricky Gutierrez uh, versus Bartolo Colon in 1998. Couldn't find that audio? Uh, no, it's less interesting because Gutierrez uh, ended the at-bat with a strikeout. And so you'll see why this one is, is better. Um, in 2004, <clears throat> the Dodgers won the West. Uh, they won a bunch of games. Uh, the Cubs won 89 that year but missed the playoffs coming off the 2003 Bartman year. Paul was talking about earlier. Uh, the Cardinals won 105 that year but lost to the Red Sox in the World Series. Um, all right, so Vin Scully is on the call. <clears throat> and the uh, the caption to this YouTube video I found to be pretty humorous. Um he said, uh, I couldn't find this anywhere on the internet. It's no longer available on MLB.com. This is an inspirational video about the value of not giving up. Wow. So uh, here is uh, Alex Cora's 18 pitch at bat versus Matt Clement with Vince Scully on the call. A fly ball. So when you don't have power, a couple of fly balls is pretty much wasted opportunities. Fly to center, fly to right. See if they have him bunting. Ball one. That's a strike. One and one. Now two and one. Nope. No play. Foul ball. Ground foul. Fouled away. There it is. Pull it foul. And driven foul. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Here comes the 15th pitch in this at bat. Wow. The crowd now is really into the pitches. And still two and two. Nobody out. Big foul. Wow. It's a 16 pitch at bat and the crowd loves it. And look at Dave Roberts. They're all enjoying this battle. Matt Clement and Alex Cora. Coming into the game, Cora was hitting 400 against Clement. He is 0 for 2 tonight. So the game within the game here. Well, here's the 16th pitch. What an at bat. Seventeen pitches. It is the rare time that you can be in the ballpark and everyone is counting the pitches, and it's going to be a seventeen pitch at bat now, at least. Well, we I don't know. You know they don't keep records of pitches and at bats, but uh, it's kind of special. This will be the seventeenth pitch. 
Rabowski's exhausted. And Mike Ireland reminds me how about if Grabowski had been running on every pitch. Time. Oh, the crowd is loving it. You ever see so much excitement and nothing has happened? That's what's really funny about it. All right. Here's the 17th pitch. It's foul. Foul ball by a hair. So that means it will be at least an 18 pitch at bat. Clement has made more pitches to Alex Cora right now than he has made in any inning but the third. The 18th pitch. High fly ball into right field. Back goes Sosa. Way back to the gate. It's gone. Home run, Alex Cora on the 18th pitch, and the Dodgers lead four to nothing. Oh, what a moment! Nine twenty-three on the scoreboard. If you want to write it down for history, what an at bat! And Dusty Baker says, we're going to stop the fight. And Dusty's going to bring in a fresh horse. That's one of the. All right. A true, uh, true inspiration to us all. Yeah. So Monday morning motivation for you. I like how Vince Goley said they didn't keep stats for this, but you just listed off. <laughs> He's mistaken. All right, uh, that does it for our sounds of the game. Next up, uh, very excited. It is time for our, uh, my interview with Ryan Watt. I spoke to him Thursday uh, before the Cubs and National Series uh, began. So here is Ryan Watt. I am joined on the podcast this week by Ryan Watt. He is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus Wrigleyville, also a staff writer for uh, Baseball Prospectus Ryan, welcome to the Foot in the Box podcast. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Uh, you can follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Watts. That's R-I-A-N-W-A-T-T. Well, Ryan, the Cubs are off to a historically good start. Uh, as we record this, they are 20-6, and six, maybe 21-6 and six by the end of it. So they're playing the Nationals right now. Uh, run differential of plus 93, best offense in baseball, best pitching in baseball, maybe the best fielding and base running in baseball, according to some metrics. Uh, so my first question is, what do you make of this? How did you, you know, did you expect this kind of start? What do you make of all of it? Yeah, I think uh, it's been it's been a lot all at once. I think people expected the Cubs to be good. I don't think many people expected them to be this good. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's surprised that they're this good because the potential is always there. But, you know, the nature of baseball is that potential – doesn't always, and in fact, doesn't even often play up to its its full limit. 
And right now, fact is the Cubs aren't even really playing up to their full potential, and they still have the best record in the game, which is sort of a scary thing to see. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of guys in the middle of their lineup who aren't really hitting yet. The pitching has been superb. The bullpen has really barely been used, relatively speaking, because the pitching has been so good. But the offense hasn't yet gotten going, and they're still putting up that ludicrous run differential. So it's uh, it's something to watch. You You can just <laughs> kind of sit back and, and enjoy it because these kind of things are special. Yeah, as a Cubs fan, I have uh, I've really enjoyed it. Um, and you mentioned that a lot of people haven't been performing up to their expectations, um, you know, with Schwarber being hurt. Hayward and Soler mm-hmm. haven't been, um, you know, what people expected. Still plenty of time, obviously, for those guys to turn it around. So why have they been so good? If those guys, you know, haven't been playing to their best potential, uh, who has been? Well, I think you've seen a lot of the guys who coming into the season were expected to be more marginal contributors. Matt Caesar, who, of course, is still on the DL at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Javi Baez, Tommy Listella, those guys are coming through in the clutch uh, when they need to. Ben Zobrist has quietly been very, very solid. Chris Bryan has been fantastic. Anthony Rizzo, despite kind of a low batting average, which has led people to, to think that he's not doing that well, is actually hitting extremely well. Mm-hmm. His on-base percentage is up near 400. Those guys have all been very solid. But the bottom line is they have a team where every single hitter understands exactly what they're trying to do at the plate and has this patient approach that waits for the right pitch in the zone to drive. And when you have enough guys doing that, and in the Cubs' case, it's all of their hitters, uh, it's hard not to score runs. I mean, some days it's going to happen, of course, and you'll you'll have bad days as a team, but they put themselves in a position where the lineup very rarely all struggles at the same time because the approach doesn't slump, as mm-hmm. Madden likes to say. And, and that's producing runs even when the heavy hitters aren't hitting. Yeah, it really has been a team approach. Um, relentless, I guess, is the best word to describe uh, the offense. Yeah. And they've got a, a big series with the Nationals going on right now as we record this four-game series over the weekend. Nationals are 19-8, and eight, um, so just one win behind the Cubs. And they have the second-best run differential in baseball, plus 50, which is about mm-hmm. half, half of the Cubs. Um, what's uh, what's made them so good this season? I know you, you lived in D.C., now you're, you're in Boston, but uh, – you know, as you yeah, moving w- around. went to some games in uh, D.C. and followed the team there, what what has been the reason why they started off so well? Well, I'll say first of all that uh, I did go to a couple games in D.C., but I'm far less knowledgeable about the Nationals than I am about the Cubs. So <laughs> take whatever I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But it, it it seems to me that the story there is their pitching. They've they've had really really good pitching so far this year. Steven Strasburg has kind of in a weird way for a guy who was as hyped as he was flown under the radar yeah. a little bit. You know, Joe Ross, who's pitching right now, um, has been has been pretty solid as well. They've just gotten a lot of really good performances from the guys who they need to and the offense is is clicking along. It's not quite as dominant as the Cubs offense has been, but it's uh it's you know, well above average on a major league level and it's all kinda of come together under Dusty Baker, which I don't know if you could say it was predictable coming into the season, but this this is the kind of club that, that Dusty would do well with. It's got a lot of veterans mm-hmm. in there. They've got a lot of talent in the room. It's a question of putting them in a position where they feel ready to succeed. And as, as, as hokey as that sounds, it I think it's kind of what Dusty's been able to do. They've, mm-hmm. they've been a team that's had strong by clubhouse issues the last couple of years, and those issues appear to have disappeared under his leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're going into today, their ERA was second behind the Cubs um, in all of baseball. Do you think they have yep. the, the type of pitching staff that could shut down the Cubs in the playoffs like the Mets last year? 
Sure. I mean, a couple of teams do. It, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if you have a certain baseline level of talent, if you're playing to the very top level of that talent as the Mets were in the postseason last year against the Cubs, you can shut down pretty much any offense in baseball. The way the Mets were pitching in the NCS last year, the 1927 Yankees would have had a hard time against them. Mm-hmm. They were just playing really, really well. So sure, I think that the Nationals rotation could shut down the Cubs, but you could also see a situation where if the Cubs and Nationals meet up in the postseason series, the Cubs light them up mm-hmm. in three or four straight games. So they, uh, they're certainly in a good position. I think they're going to be fighting with the Cubs all season long for, for that kind of spot at the top of the National League standings. Yeah. Yeah, the playoffs really are a, a crapshoot, um, which, you know, yeah. as a Cubs fan looking ahead to a great season, uh, it's almost a bad thing because, uh, you know, all this might be for, for nothing if we uh, yes, don't, don't, don't make it uh, all the way. Uh, one more nationalist question. Uh, you wrote an article on Dusty Baker that I enjoyed last week, um, and then Bryce Harper's obviously probably the best player in baseball right now. Do you think mm-hmm. that that relationship between – manager and player who Dusty often calls him the wrong name. Uh, uh, do you think, yeah. Do you think that relationship will uh, continue to work? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to say, I don't know either guy personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you alluded to, I did, did talk to a couple of nationals players, not Harper, um, about Dusty's leadership and what he means to them. And, and then from other interviews I've heard with Harper, I'm sure the same applies to him, which is that, Dusty makes players feel like, A, they're valued, and B, that they're in the best position possible to succeed. And that, I think, is is sometimes underrated by by people in my position, which is to say people writing from a primarily analytics-oriented perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but players kept telling me over and over again it matters, that he gets it, that he understands how hard it is to be a big league player, how hard it is to do what they do every day. And he works hard to put them in a position where that job is going to be as easy as it possibly can be for them. And mm-hmm. that when they screw up, he doesn't come down hard on them. He just says, you know, you'll get them next time. And uh, mm-hmm. and that seems to matter. And I'm, I'm sure for, for Bryce Harper, it's the same thing. Harper's a, an outspoken personality. He's a, he's a kind of flamboyant player. And I, I don't say that as a bad thing in either case. Um, and, and Dusty is the kind of manager who will create an environment where that can, that can flourish. Yeah, I guess... Uh... If you can manage Barry Bonds in his uh, his prime, then you can yeah, manage exactly. about anyone. You can manage pretty well anyone. A <laughs> uh, couple more Cubs questions uh, to wrap up. Uh, so the Cubs, you know, will probably, you know, it's it's hard saying this, but they'll probably somewhat coast to a playoff spot this year. Uh, what are a couple things that Cubs fans like myself can watch for, even you know, as they win a lot of games, mostly against really bad teams like the Brewers and the Reds and Padres and uh, the bottom of the NL. What what are some things that we can watch for, even even mm-hmm. during that? Well, first and foremost, I think is injuries. Injuries have already hit the Cubs way more this year in just the first month than um, than they did pretty much all of last year. Where the the biggest thing that happened, as far as I can recall, was Miguel Montero was out for a little bit of time last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just keep an eye on those nagging injuries. You know, a hamstring injury like Matt Caesar has could linger for a little while. Chasing downward to wrist. No. Got into the game just now, so you know it can't be that bad. But wrist injuries linger. Just keep an eye on that because that's the only thing really that could get in the way of the Cubs, as you say, kind of cruising into playoff spot is, is severe debilitating injuries to, to major players. So that's that's first and foremost. But that's sort of a given. So the more interesting thing I think at, at this point is how the Cubs use Javi Baez and Jorge Soler, because those are two players with 
extraordinary potential, MVP ceiling potential, which is not to say they'll get anywhere close to it because they might not, but they're both at points in their developmental process where they need playing time. They need the opportunity to go out there and uh, show what they can do and adjust to the league on a daily basis. And Bias seems to have gotten himself into a position where Madden trusts him enough to give him that. He'll get into pretty much everything, you know, and have the opportunity to flash the leather or, you know, get a couple of key at-bats. Solaire, it doesn't seem like he's quite there yet, which mm-hmm. is interesting because even more so than Bias. He sort of has that profile. He didn't get a lot of professional at-bats in the minors after defecting from Cuba, um, where he could really use some, some more playing time. So it'll be interesting to watch how that how that all goes down. You know, the front office and Joe Madden are, are very smart, and they think about these things a lot. So I'm sure they have a reason for what they're doing, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm just I'm surprised we haven't seen more of Solaire these days. Yeah, especially with the injuries. You know, if you would have said, you know, Schwarber goes out uh, for the season, Hayward has some injuries, even Caesar goes down. I would think, oh, Solaire's probably a staple. Yeah, in the but outfield. Kalish comes up and he's getting starts. Yeah, yeah, that was. I, to be honest, I, I hadn't even followed that he was still around, and then uh, I was listening to the radio, and sure enough, Kalish is playing the field. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, last question. You run uh, Baseball Prospectus, Wrigleyville, the Cubs uh, Cubs site for Baseball Prospectus. What's it been like to run a Cubs website with all this success? Is it is it you know? I would think it would be good for readership and that sort of thing, uh, but I'm just curious to know your take on that. Yeah, it's definitely good for readership. I, I I'll say I guess I I came in at the right time. I've only <laughs> been doing this for about a year, and I, you know, tip my cap to people like Brett Taylor who. who bless him, started writing on the last day of the 2008 season and then had to suffer through 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 mm-hmm. uh, running his site um, before finally getting to this point. But Brett's also a lot better at this than I am. <laughs> um, so it's been fun. You know, people are excited about the team. People are excited about the possibility. There's a lot of exciting and interesting stories to tell, and Cubs are getting some attention nationally, which is which is always good. Yeah. Well, Paul and I always enjoy when you jump on the J show here in Champaign. So uh, keep uh, keep doing that. Thanks, they're fun. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for being on with us, and uh, appreciate uh, the time. And uh, I guess go Cubs. Yep. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thanks to Ryan for uh, making the time for us. Go follow him on Twitter. Uh, like I said, his handle is Ryan Watt. Ryan spelled R-I-A-N. Yes, W-A-T-T. Yep. Not J.J. Watts' brother <laughs> or uh, cousin. All right, bottom of the ninth. Uh, first up, we have Say My Name. Say my name, say my name. All right, uh, last week I covered Bubbles Hargrave, and this week I'm c- covering a contemporary of Bubbles. Could have done Tone Ash. I could have. Uh, I'm doing Cuckoo Christensen this week, uh, my favorite so far. Uh, Cuckoo, his real name was Walter uh, Walter Nails Christensen. Uh, he also went by the nickname Sea Cap, um, and that was because his mother dressed him as a in a sailor suit for school quite often growing up. Uh, Cuckoo was born in 1899 and made his major league debut in 1926. He was a center fielder. He played for the Reds for two seasons, uh, and that was it. Very short career. He actually finished second to Bubbles in 19. 19- uh, in 1995 for the batting uh, championship. So he had a very good first year, but then uh, fizzled out quickly right after that. 
uh, most interesting anecdote about Cuckoo. He got the nickname Cuckoo for doing crazy things to get attention. Most notably, he would do somersaults in the outfield before he caught fly balls. Um, he was cut early into his second season because uh, he did that and then dropped a fly ball, and the manager um, didn't like that. According to the the excerpt of a book I was reading, uh, his antics didn't didn't fly on a losing team. So the Reds weren't as good that year, and Cuckoo was given the door. So Cuckoo Christensen is your name this week. It's a great one. My uh, <clears throat> Yahoo answer of the week uh, question comes from um, an anonymous user. It says, is there anyone alive today who can remember the last Cubs World Series win? thought this was topical. Uh, his description says, not trying to insult the Cubs or anything, but their last World Series victory came 102 years ago. So this was about five years ago uh, is when the question was written. Uh, he says, for anyone to actually remember that happening, they would have to be close to 110. Not many people alive today who've reached that age, and a good chance none of them followed baseball when they were little kids. A variety of answers. I enjoyed all of them. Um, Stag uh, says, no, I wouldn't think there would be any around, but they have to be somewhere in the 100s now. But you never know. Uh, I would figure that they would all be dead now, but... They're lucky to have seen a Cubs team win a World Series and even be more luckier if they were still alive today and how memories of that happening. Not really a coherent sentence there. Uh, Yankees fan says, uh, and, uh, extremely unlikely. Um, Freddie Vincent says, yes, there are several people over 110 years old. And lastly, MFFL says, I remember it like it was 1908. So apparently he was alive. Hmm. To see it as a Yahoo user, yeah. All right, uh, I guess if uh, the person was alive that did remember it and had an email account, I would guess that it was set up on Yahoo <laughs> compared to the other ones. All right, time for pick your team. Twenty six weeks in the baseball season. Uh, each week, Paul and I pick a new team. And that team's record is our record for that week. Added it all up together, and that's our overall record. Four weeks, we'll have to pick twice to make it work. Uh, The loser of this battle has to record singing Batter Up, the intro song by himself. Uh, All right, Paul, who you got this week? Give me the Fighting Mattingly's. Go the Miami Marlins. All right, I am taking the Royals. Royals have the Yankees and Braves Mm. this week. A uh, bit of a slow start. They're 14 and 14, but. Their third baseman just broke his hand. Yeah. Uh, Braves and Yankees are both pretty bad right now. Uh, this past week, Paul had the Pirates, who, as of this recording, are 1 and 3, got swept by the Cubs. And I had the Astros, who took uh, 2 out of 3 against uh, the team that they were playing, and then they split so far in another series. Um, so overall records so far, Paul is 17 and 11 and I am 19 and 10. All right. want to end the podcast by talking about a book. We've got another book that we're going to read as a podcast in a couple weeks. I guess we're going to read it before that. And in two weeks, we're going to discuss it. The book is called the only rule is it has to work written by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller. Both of these writers are uh, favorites of, of Paul and I's. Ben Lindbergh was a Grantland guy, now writes for 538.com, 
and Sam Miller is the editor of Baseball Prospectus and just a really funny uh, baseball writer. Uh, I encourage you to follow him on Twitter. He's very funny. All right, so they wrote a book called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. They uh, kind of took on the ultimate uh, experiment. They uh, were given the reins to a independent league team in California, and for one season were allowed to do whatever they wanted uh, to uh, sabermetrically um, to um, make the team what they viewed uh, you know, the best possible team. So Ben and Sam record this daily podcast called Effectively Wild. I'm a big fan of it. Um, and uh, 500 episodes in, they, they have a lot of, of knowledge that they um, think they know about baseball. And so it was an experiment for them to use all the things that they felt like would be uh, you know, on a successful team. Uh, and the book is just about their experience doing it. Um, a lot of people are saying it's a really good book, so we thought we'd read it and discuss it. So if you want to, you can uh, buy the book on Amazon. We'll link to it in the podcast episode page and also tweet it out uh, later this week. I think there was an excerpt on uh, 538. So we'll tweet that out and you can read it and decide if you want to read it. Yes, should be another good book. And uh, I'm loving the kind of this run of baseball publishing we've had recently. Mm-hmm. Jeff Passan wrote a great book. and uh, Now this one. Now this one. Quite the run. Quite the run. Two, uh, one more and it's a winning streak. Two great books early on in the season. All right. That does it. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please leave us a review there. Help us get the word out to more people. You can send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. That's afootinthebox at gmail.com. Been loving all the emails we've been getting recently. So uh, keep sending them our way. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. Uh, check us out online at afootinthebox.com. It's where Paul's weekly column can be found and where old episodes of the podcast can also be found. I think that does it. I'm about ready to go take a massive nap uh, after Paul says goodbye. Yes, and before I give my weekly reminder, uh, happy Mother's Day. Absolutely. Um, uh, Props to to all you moms out there. And uh, mom, if you're listening, thanks for all you did for us. And your wife. As you raised us, yes. Her first Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to my wife. Uh, And as always, remember to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week. When I was hungry, she cooked me something yummy. And when I was sick, she would take care of me. Fix me your chicken soup. Let me stay home from school. But if I did, I couldn't leave the room because that was the rule. I could run in the race and come dead last. She say, that's my baby. Stand up and clap. She taught me respect, and I'm thankful for that. And if I ever fell in love, make sure that girl loved me back. A couple times when I was bad, she hauled off and whooped my ass. But I'm still her biggest fan, cause she made me who I am.